Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, so if you'd go ahead and join me there. Over the last few weeks, we've been uh, looking at what the Scripture has to say about the people of God being empowered by the Holy Spirit and what it looks like for that first century group of Christians who are experiencing it for the very first time to learn how to walk and to live in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We later learn throughout all of Paul's writing that there is only one Spirit. And so the same Spirit, and that God doesn't change, so it means that the same Spirit that indwelt those first Christians is the exact same Spirit that indwells Christians today. And so when we look at the book of Acts, we're not learning history. We're not only finding the foundations from where we came uh, or the, the, the origin story of our faith. We're actually looking at a blueprint of what's available to us today. And so I hope that over the last few weeks you've been getting glimpses of what it looks like for us as individual Christians to walk in the fullness of measure of the Holy Spirit. So today we're in Acts chapter 13, and we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll just read through verse, verse 12 uh, very quickly. Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a sorcerer, a, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's something that must come first. But, uh, but Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. I think we should bring that word back. Villainy. That just sounds an awesome word. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind. The Greek says, you shall be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, a dark mist fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Lord, this morning we ask for the blessing of just simply the reading of your word. And I pray that as your spirit manifests through the reading of your word, that we would be able to make proper application for our own lives. Help us to see things that perhaps we've not seen before. Give us spiritual eyes to, do, to not only hear, to not only understand, but to apply your truths. And may those truths transform our lives. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Acts chapter 12, we'll do a little bit of a quick history lesson here. In Acts chapter 12, verse 25, we learn that, that Barnabas and Saul, and here is John Mark. We know it says John, but uh, Acts 12 tells us that it was John Mark. And by the way, Mark, John Mark is also the writer of the Gospel of Mark. That'll come in handy in just a few moments. But they were all at the church at Antioch, which was on the sort of the west, western part of really the, the most powerful parts of all of Judaism at the time. But they were at Antioch because they had been commissioned out of Jerusalem. This region was really beginning to struggle under some persecution. And uh, it was ex uh, experience, they were experiencing a lot of financial hardship as a result of their faith. And so the church in Jerusalem took up a special offering and sent some money to their brothers and sisters up in Antioch. And, and Saul and Barnabas and John Mark were the three chosen for the church of Jerusalem to go there. So if you've wondered why the church of Antioch, uh, why we just out of nowhere start learning about them, it's important to go back over to Acts chapter 12 and to learn why they were actually there. And uh, if you, you look at Antioch, of course, Barnabas and Saul, they're, they're not legendary yet. People all over the world do not know them yet. Everybody's a new Christian. Try to remember that in the first century. Everybody is a new Christian. Most people don't have a, a great deal of legacy yet. Paul is not a missionary yet. He's not accepted to call to missions yet. He's just a servant looking to get involved into people's lives, much like Barnabas had already been doing. But we learn that there are some people in this congregation in Antioch, and it is incredibly important to know who they are. The first one is a man by the name of Simeon, who is called Niger. That was a nickname, and Niger is, is the Latin word for black. It doesn't take a great deal of uh, study to know how a man gets that nickname in those days. Uh, so we understand there were some very, very dark Jewish people. But we also know that this is not very far from northern Africa. And so it is quite possible that being a Jew, which he was, but also being from Africa, as many Jews were then, that uh, there wasn't very many in the church at Antioch. But here's what I believe is happening. And I'm going to do just a little quick history lesson here, okay? In Luke's or in Mark's gospel of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Luke tells us a story, I mean, Mark tells us a story about Simeon or Simon from Cyrene. And he says that he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And uh, these boys were just young boys at the time. They were there, no doubt, celebrating Passover with their dad. And it was Simon that was tapped on the shoulder to carry Jesus' cross. Well, the name Simon in Simeon is exactly the same name uh, in those days, all right? So it is quite possible that we know Cyrene is North Africa. We also know that the Cyrenes and the, the, uh, some folks from that general area are the ones who actually established the church in Antioch. They were the pioneers of the church. Now we know that Simon's life would never be the same after he carried the cross of Jesus Christ and after he saw the things and heard the things that he saw. Mark names his sons Alexander and Rufus. When Paul later in the book of Rome talks about the church at Antioch, he talks and says, give greetings to Rufus and to his mother. And so it doesn't take a great stretch to think that this man who carried the cross of Jesus Christ is actually one of the church planters in the church at Antioch. There's also another man that is listed there as well. 
and his name is Manan. Now, it says to us very quickly that one of his best friends growing up was Herod, the Tetrarch. Herod is the man who actually cut the head off of John the Baptist and one of the men who was a ruler over one of the trials of Jesus Christ himself. And here he is, one of the best friends to Herod growing up, childhood friends, and he is also establishing the church at Antioch. So what we learn is there are some pretty big powerhouses already at work. People who had a long history with Christianity already and some men who are incredibly influential in the Roman Empire. Does any of that matter? Not even a little bit. But what matters is this was a firmly established church with very godly people who had great testimonies of the transformation of Jesus Christ. So Luke, in Acts, is giving us sort of a biographical sketch of who is making up the early church, and that is people of depth and people of influence. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to know their names. Let's look down at verse 2, and it says that they were ministering to the Lord or ministered to the Lord. And by the way, ministry is first. All ministry is first and foremost to the Lord. And I cannot overstate this. Our service to one another is service to Jesus Christ. And if it is not, it's just simply volunteering. And, and, and we want to make sure that the things that we do for one another is actually first and foremost to the Lord. Um, we are not volunteers. We are ministers to the Lord. If we volunteer, that simply means that we have said yes to a cause or to a need or to a person. But if we're servants to the Lord, we have said yes to the mission, to the model, and to the person of Jesus Christ himself. Let me tell you, for those of you who are regularly serving in your church, I hope that you recognize that your yes isn't to a ministry leader. Your yes should be to Jesus Christ. It will change your level of intention. It will change the level of your perception as you minister. When you think about extending the hands of Jesus Christ rather than extending the hands of a ministry area. And so they are learning that their ministry is first and foremost to the Lord. It's, it's okay to volunteer. I mean, if your heart isn't quite there yet, but I just believe that as we start serving one another, we can start seeing Jesus. We catch a glimpse of ministry, and uh, it'll begin to change our hearts once we begin to say yes to one another. Eventually, we will see that we're saying yes to Jesus Christ. And our goal at Connect Church is that everyone who serves or that everyone attends finds a place of ministry and that everyone that ministers understands their ministry is unto the Lord. And so there's lots of ways to be involved in God's work, but we must understand that we don't serve the church. We serve Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. It's not a good thing that we do. It's a God thing that we do. It's all His, including our work. So when we serve, we have to make sure that we're about his kingdom. Uh, this was part of what was happening in this very godly church at Antioch. And they were beginning to understand this. Uh, but they were living countercultural. So I want to take just a second and explain what I mean by that. Everything about their current culture was anti-Christ. 
Christ was on, with everything was brand new and they saw Jesus as a false teacher and all of his followers were a cult. They were trying to mow them down in the streets. They didn't have any respect. They had no freedoms. They were rogue. In fact, the word atheist was applied to them in Rome because the Roman citizens who served the pantheon of gods saw Christians who denounced all of that as anti-God. They, they were definitely of countercultural. The problem, the difference between them and us is we no longer live countercultural. Our culture has been Christian for so long, we have grown so soft and so weak because we don't have to live countercultural. Well, let me speak a word of warning. That is changing rapid fire, right? So we are beginning to live in a post-Christian culture. And if you claim the name of Jesus, you're going to be uh, in the spotlight just like they were. In my lifetime, I have seen that change. I have watched the church move from influential to a nuisance in culture. And I'm telling you, if the church of Jesus Christ do not, does not stop just sticking their foot in the sand and saying, you know, harping and moaning and groaning about everything, if we will stop, start promoting the name of Jesus Christ, we have to start to learn how to live countercultural instead of just grumbling about the culture all the time. It's not going to win the world to always resist that. We must learn what does it look like for us to be first century Christians 2,000 years later. And when we do, we will begin to see not the world's culture change. It's not going to. We're not going to see Christianity come into our country through governments and legislation. That's going to happen when the people of God stand up and be the people of God. And when the world looks at Christians, they can actually see Jesus. So let me encourage you. And that's actually encouragement because we've never done that before. We've always been able to take the easy road. But uh, we're going to live in a day where we've got to learn that we ought to obey God rather than men. And to live counterculturally. We're going to be learning as a church what does that look like for us at Connect Church. To live countercultural without a chip on our shoulder. Obedience to whom? Our obedience to Jesus Christ. So this is the first job of any servant of God is to minister to the Lord. Now how you approach ministry really is determined by how you approach yourself. So this is the first step of countercultural Christianity, right? If you are, and nobody would probably identify themselves as this, but if you are entitled, it's because you're looking at ministry through your eyes. But if you're a servant, it's because you're looking at ministry as a servant to the master, right? So when you are coming to church as a consumer, it's because you're looking at church and ministry through your eyes. What's in it for me? You know, what can I gain from this? But when you begin to look at Jesus first and foremost, I'm telling you, Jesus will pour directly, not to you, through you. And that's when your ministry will become a blessing and uh, and not just a good idea. So an entitled person sees themselves, a servant sees their master. So ministering to the Lord actually means doing what pleases him and what honors him. Now the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old and the New Testament. So when the Greek translators were translating all of the Old and the New Testament, this word, ministering to the Lord, in almost every, every time, some of your translations already gets it right, uh, the word is worship, not serving. So I want you to understand the importance of serving the Lord and worship. We don't worship the Lord when we sing or when we pray, but we're not 
you know, worshiping the Lord when we're serving. It's the same thing. They're interchangeable. So they ministered or they worshiped to the Lord and they fasted. I think this is so important for us. We don't talk about fasting very often. What does that even mean to fast? Well, as part of their service to the Lord, that's exactly what they did. And it seems to me they were asking themselves, what are the next steps? We're meeting together. We're singing our songs. We're praying our prayers. We're, we're worshiping. We're serving. We're, we're leading people to Christ. But what's next? What a vital part of worship this is, is to ask the question, what's next? And I think far too few Christians are asking the question, what is next for me? What is next for me? for us. What is the application that I should be taking away from what I am learning about God's truth? Not, not head knowledge, not what am I gaining, what new little nuggets of tidbits am I beginning to put into my head, but what is God calling me to do? And so we know what God is calling us to do, right? He didn't mince any words. He said, make disciples. We know that's what he wants us to do. And so this church who now has Paul and Barnabas up there and John Mark, who grew up in a Christian home, who was a very young man when Jesus was crucified and grew up uh, under, under uh, the influence of Christianity, they're all up here in Antioch and they're asking themselves, what are we supposed to do? Here's the answer, make disciples. How do we make disciples here? That's the real question. How do we make disciples? What's next? What did Jesus say? He said, go. All right, Lord, we want to make disciples. We are deep. We are, well, we are you know, experienced. We're influential. What would you have for us? I don't want you to picture a church like we experience on Sunday morning. I want you to experience a band of about 20 to 30 people huddled up in a home. And I want you to think about them getting together and say, what does God want us to do in this culture? What did Jesus say? He said, make disciples. How? Go. As you are going, make disciples. Okay, Lord, we don't know what to do next. Where do you want us to go? And the Lord sometimes is silent. And so what are they going to do? They're going to fast, and they're going to plead with the Lord. Lord, give us direction for our life. And as they are fasting, as they are praying, they're worshiping, they're leaning in for wisdom, Paul learned this. He even told us, you don't have it. Uh, James told us, you don't have it because you're not asking for it. So, Lord, we need your wisdom. Who do you want to go? Where do you want them to go? And the Lord answers. So, their worship, now listen, this is important. Write this down. If you've got a pen and you're writing it down, their worship provided a need, prompted a need, right? It was through their worship that they saw the need, but it was through their fasting that they got the answer for the direction. It was the, the worship that brought them to the reality of what's next, but it was the seriousness that gave them the direction. And I think that's a very big lesson for us to learn as well. It's easy for us to always be asking what next, what next, what next, but it's another thing to be serious enough about listening to the Lord and pleading for Him to use us. So here's what the Lord said. And I don't believe it was an audible voice. It may have been. But, uh, you know, he says to, to them, separate to me. Not separate from yourself, but separate from me. It's more like he's saying to them, okay, give me Paul and Barnabas. That's what you have to do. You have to, you know, we dedicate our kids to the Lord. This is kind of like that. The Lord looking at this early church and saying, Paul and Barnabas, give them to me. I will, I will use them. 
Uh, if, we will, if we will separate to God, it means that you're going to have to separate from some other things. And I think one of our prayers needs to be continually, Lord, what would you call me to separate myself from so that I could be used for your kingdom? And I just, you know, I, I want to experience that communally. I want, if we're going to live in a post-Christian countercultural world, we've got to learn how to live communally, how to count on each other, how to pray for one another, how to ask the questions of what next, how to encourage one another. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament is filled with at least 22 one another's. And today we live in a culture where I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You have to go to church to do a one another right? That's what Christianity is, a, is about. We need one another to be able to live countercultural. That's never been more true than it is this day. So we have to separate from some things if we're going to be separated to some things. You can't really say yes to God's call on your life until you learn to say no to some things that you know are going to stand in your way. So Christianity is really about learning what to say yes to and what to say no to. So if you go back to Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, God actually told Ananias that he said, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him many things that he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, he didn't tell Paul that. He told Ananias what Paul's calling was going to be. And now here he is. Now, this is not a touchy-feely, feel-good call to ministry. This is a serious call that these men know are going to ultimately probably cost them their life and many heartaches. But again, if your caveat of ministry is, and by the way, I want to be comfortable too, uh, you're probably not going to hear from the Lord. But if your caveat is, here I am, send me, uh, that's a good shot that the Lord is going to speak directly. So we already know what God wanted for Paul, and now we find that Paul is asking to be used in such a way. All right, let's shift back down to verse 3. Then having fasted and prayed. Now listen, they fasted. They, they were worshiping the Lord that led to the seriousness of what next. It was their what next that prompted the Holy Spirit to say, separate out to me, Paul and Barnabas. So how does the church respond? Again, they pray and fasted after they received the answer. And they laid hands on them and they sent them away. That's very important. I want you to notice that the church sent them away. Uh, so they were called by prayer and fasting, but they're also sent with prayer and fasting. Uh, the whole work required substantial dependence on God, and fasting and prayer demonstrated that dependence. Laying hands on them does not demonstrate anything other than acceptance or believability or trustworthiness. These men are not separated away from them, but from them, called out from them. They are going to be used in a very specific way, but this was a way for the church to go with them, to extend to them accountability, responsibility, and, uh, and authority from the church. There's not some kind of spiritual you know, conduit here. What's really taken place is just when you are in a dark place and you're in a lonely place, you need to remember that Menaean and you need to remember that Lucius and you need to remember that Simeon all said, we believe that God has confirmed a call on your life. And I'm telling you, for those of you who have ever been in ministry, that sometimes it's a dark place and sometimes you feel alone. And it's a very empowering moment to remember the men in your life 
and the godly women in your life who said, I believe that God is using you for ministry. I trust in God's call, and I'm confirming upon you. And you can say, I'm not the only one. Other people saw it in me too. And so that's what's taking place here. What a gift for them to, uh, to walk away with that. All right, verse 4. First place they go is Seleucia. Now, I'm not going to give you a whole big bunch of geography today, but Antioch and Seleucia is not very far from each other. In fact, Seleucia is a, a port city just outside of Antioch. It uh, was actually the capital of Antioch, near Antioch. It's, it's, uh, we don't hear about any ministry that takes place in Seleucia. And uh, here's why I think that's true. Uh, they go to Seleucia because that's where they're sailing out from. This is where they get on the boat. And so, uh, wasn't again, it wasn't very far away from the church at Antioch. And they get on the boat. First stop, Cyprus. Why does that matter? Cyprus is a, a, a huge island. It's the third largest island in all of the Mediterranean Ocean. Right? It's a huge island. But more importantly... Uh, we find over in uh, Acts chapter 5, 4 and 5, that this is actually the island where Barnabas grew up. The first place that God called Paul and Barnabas to go was Barnabas's home island. And so they traveled to the east coast of the, of the island, and uh, they worked their way from city to city all the way through the island. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, because I, it's, uh, uh, I think if we were to have a conversation about it, we'd say, who's the hardest people in your life to speak the gospel to? Most people would say family. I can't, it's really hard to talk to family about the gospel. Now, if they're already Christians, it's easy to have Bible conversation with other Christians that are family. That's why we gravitate toward them. But all of us have family, right? You know what I mean? Uh, all of us have family that we're like, yeah, I don't know. We say oh, the people that we love the most, the people that are family, are the hardest to reach. But it's where the Holy Spirit sent Barnabas back to his home island to work his way through the entire island. And you know what he gave him? He gave him the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Word of God's not uh, finished yet. Uh, barely has even begun to be written. The testimony of Jesus Christ on Barnabas' lips and the transformation of Barnabas' life. His testimony, his ministry. It's this is who I was and this is who I am. I don't know. We know that he was a powerful businessman. He had lots of money because he gave it all away. In fact, he left the island and moved mainland probably to make a lot more money. And he already owned property on the island. Barnabas was a, he was a go-getter. But and I'm not, you know, Scripture doesn't say it. So just in my mind, I'm just thinking about this man when he gets back and they can see what Jesus Christ has done in him. What a testimony of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. He's not asking Barnabas to, be, to wax eloquently and impress people with his speeches and his sermons. Just go back and let him see you. Later, this is going to be the same thing that Paul is given the opportunity to do. Just let people see the change in your life. How often do we say, well, I don't have the right thing to say, or I'm not a preacher, or I'm not good with evangelism, or what if I make a lot of mistakes? Let me tell you something. God has given every one of us, empowered every one of us with the only thing that we need to lead other people to Jesus Christ. What is it? Every one of us has it. What is it? Our story. The transforming power of this is who I was, and this is who I am. And you don't have to beg and plead for that. God gives it readily to us. 
I don't understand all the mysteries of theology. I don't know how to pronounce half the words. But here's what I know. I know that I'm not the same person after I've met Jesus Christ. And it makes a significant difference, right? So they, uh, they move on from... Seleucia, they go to Cyprus, they begin to work their way through. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John as their assistant. We've already talked about John. This is John Mark. But, uh, you know, Salamis is uh, is the furthest city, port city, near Seleucia. So they just traveled across the Mediterranean, stopped at the first city, and started and started uh, preaching there. Now, there was a custom called open synagogue. Uh, Open synagogue means that anybody who had certain educational credentials could go to any synagogue on any Sabbath day and address the people and teach whatever it is that they had laid on their heart for the people that day. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas, you ever wonder why Paul would be so risky as a Christian to go to the synagogue first? It's because they couldn't stop him. He was a Jew. He was also a Roman because his dad was a Roman. Many people think that Paul changed his name to fit in better, but Paul was always Paul. He was given that name at birth. When he was with Jews, they called him Saul. When he was with Romans and Gentiles, they called him Paul. So when he played with the Jewish boys, they called him Saul. When, they, when he played with the Gentile boys, they called him Paul. So uh, God is going to use this man to reach the Gentiles. This is the first time we find out that he's now going to be called Paul because that's who he's going to be spending all of his time with uh, is to fitting in with them. So I say all of that to say a lot of times we think Paul's changing his name to fit in, but there wasn't really any change there. It was just he changed who he spent time with. Uh, that was the biggest issue. So Paul and Barnabas was able to go into any Jewish synagogue and step up to the microphone and begin to declare the name of Jesus Christ. And when the Jewish leaders and the rabbis would begin to hear this, they would usually send them out to the streets. And there were people sitting in the congregation that would say, wow, I've never heard this kind of preaching before. I want to hear more about what these guys would say. And so the conversation would continue just outside the gates. And many people would come to know the Lord through that way. I think it's a great ministry model Paul and Barnabas uh, begin to establish there. All right, verse 6 and 7, uh, they moved to Paphos. Now, Paphos is the capital city of Cyprus. This is on the far western coast. In fact, you couldn't be further away from Antioch on the mainland than to be in Paphos. Paphos was also very far away, but the nearest port city to uh, Rome and also to Greece. And so it's interesting that this is where the capital was. That shows you the loyalty of the, of the country of Cyprus, which, by the way, is still a country, uh, that Cyprus is more loyal to Rome and to Greece and to the Western world than it is to the Jews. Now, there was two types of Roman states at the time. There were those who had to have military troops, and there were those who didn't have military troops. Cyprus was one of those locales that did not need to have military troops. It was a place of peace. These countries of peace, regions of peace, were directed by proconsuls. They directly reported to the Senate themselves. So at this point, it was the Roman Senate. They would have this man, Sergius Paulus, appointed by the Senate themselves. All of the other Uh, countries that were not at peace that had troops dealt directly with the emperor and so that's uh, it's just important to know that this man 
is the equivalent to the governor of a state. There is nobody more influential and more powerful who can make decisions in this entire country than Sergius Paulus. So when they arrived in Paphos, they found, not because they were looking, it's kind of like when you're digging through a drawer you haven't been in a while and you go, oh, look what I found. You really weren't looking for it, you just came across it. That's the same word that is here, because they found trouble. So look at who this man is. We've already read it. I'm not going to read, uh, read through it again, but I want you to look at who this man is. Uh, he is a Jew. He is a sorcerer. Um, Magi, the Greek word is magus, which is the same as the three wise men, but they literally could perform magic. They were very much into the occult. And so you think about Venus, the god, goddess Venus, the god of love, is prevalent on the island of Cyprus. And so these people, though they called themselves Jews, were so far away. It's a stretch to even call them religious they wouldn't know the truth if they heard it. I mean, look at the spiritual leader that's advising the governor. He is a magician, a sorcerer, a false prophet. Now, that probably wasn't on his business card. They believed him to truly be of God and to speak the oracles of God, but he was a far cry from a man of God. In fact, his nickname, this was apparently a big deal on Cyprus. Everybody had nicknames. But his nickname was Bar-Jesus. Bar, if you remember in your Aramaic, actually means the son of. So what is this man saying his name is? The son of Jesus? Not necessarily the offspring, but the continuation of the ministry of Jesus? Is it possible that the words of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ had already reached Cyprus? It's possible that that has already reached there. It's also possible that it's not talking about the person Jesus. It's talking about Yeshua. It's the same as Joshua, which means Jehovah will save. Maybe this man is simply saying, I am the offspring of the salvation of God. Regardless, it's a pretty arrogant name for him to be walking around saying, if you want to know about the salvation of God... I'm the one that you can get, get uh, that gives it birth. It's a pretty powerful statement of arrogance. So, uh, anyway, it was. If it is referring to Jesus directly, uh, it is a perversion of that. I have found that Satan often goes ahead of truth and perverts truth before it even gets there. For instance, you go back into history and you can look at all of these false religions, and guess what? Most of them have in common. It's a flood story. Most of them have in common a resurrection story. Many of them have in common a virgin birth story. But you know what? All of those things are prophesied in the Old Testament. So it doesn't surprise me that Satan would already know how to go ahead of Jesus Christ and pervert that truth before it even gets there. The important thing is the testimony of the lips of the eyewitnesses. And that's what we're beginning to see here. But you can see why Sergius Paulus wanted this man close if he was going to be the way to uh, endear himself to the Jews, to endear himself to the religious folks, to endear himself to maybe he does speak the oracles of God, but something was missing because he wanted to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say. I want to hear this message that has come all the way through my uh, realm, if, if you will. So this man, Bar-Jesus, obviously is oppressed at best 
by demonic activity, pretending to be a man of God, even calling himself such, convincing everyone else that he is as well. Now, I want us to take just a moment and, and give us this moral darkness is always spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness is always demonic. We like to think, when we think of demonic activity, we like to think of exorcist, right? We like to think of heads spinning and, you know, just, you just feel evil. I'm telling you, that's not how Satan most often works. Satan most often works just in spiritual darkness, perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is always, as a byproduct, is moral darkness. I want you to understand that when a civilization or a culture lacks morality, that's demonic. The reason that that is true is because of the fallen nature of, of humanity. And it doesn't take much to pervert us to move us into moral darkness. So just because this country doesn't recognize the demon control that is over them, doesn't Venus as a god is demonic. We can't just say false gods. These are demons that are in charge of people. And people don't, they have no awareness of it. I believe that there is so much more demonic activity around us than we even recognize. I think it, I don't, I'm not necessarily talking about possession all the time, but when you see immorality, when you see rebellion against God's best, that's always demonic and spiritual depravity. When it comes to sin, when it comes to rebellion, when it comes to disobedience, just because it's not dark does not mean it's not demonic. It's always demonic activity when the mouths of Christians are closed. Look at this. The Roman leader wants to know more about Jesus from Paul and Barnabas. And Elymas, as is his name, another nickname, comes alive to stop it. But he's not trying to just stop the... Uh, uh, the words of Paul and Barnabas, he is trying to withstand it. He's competing with it. Remember last week when we heard the, the, uh, the narrative of the Jews with Stephen. And in Acts chapter 6 verse 10, it says that these Jewish leaders were not able to withstand the spiritual wisdom and the, and the powerful Holy Spirit inspired teaching words of Stephen. We weren't able to withstand it. Here, we see the exact same thing. The same, the same idea. It's easy to say, well, they were Jews. That means they weren't so bad. They don't trust Jesus Christ. This is demonic. I don't care what world we live in or how political correct we have to be. We have to recognize if it's not pro-Jesus Christ, they're not for us. They're not with us. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. There's not degrees of who's safe. If they're not influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ, it's demonic activity that keeps people in darkness. But the good news is we have the power to break spiritual darkness because we've been empowered to do so. And that's what this passage of Scripture tells us, that no power formed against us can prosper. That whatever spiritual darkness is upon people, we have been filled with the Holy Spirit to break that bondage. Listen. This is a truth that I don't like, but it is a truth nonetheless. You cannot expect to do kingdom work without conflict. It doesn't exist. 
If you're going to try to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is going to require you to work through and be a part of some conflict. I don't know, this may be a newsflash for many of us, but the world does not love, the kingdom of this world does not love the kingdom of God. They're actually opposing forces working for the same recognition. But I need us to understand that the kingdom of God is always more powerful. That's why we are more than conquerors. We are overcomers. The kingdom of God always prevails. But if the people of God who live in the kingdom of God does not recognize the empowerment of God, when there is conflict and crisis, you know what we'll do? We'll shrink back. We'll keep our mouths closed. We'll just go along with the flow. doesn't necessarily change our heart, but it certainly changes our ministry. And we need, we have got to understand if we're going to be victorious in the river valley and throughout, that when we experience conflict that comes as a result of being vocal for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can't shrink away. We have to continue to stand and move forward because there are people in the darkness of this world that are not like Bar-Jesus. There are people in this world that are like Sergius Paulus that want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would transform their life and it would influence not only neighborhoods, but nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the conflict that gives birth to the victory. Remember, It's always good things happening that results in conflict. But the conflict always gives birth to greater things than the good things. This island has been held in captivity to Satan. And the island didn't even know it. And here, the kingdom of God is coming near and the kingdom of Satan is trying to withstand it. The kingdom of Satan can never withstand the kingdom of God. It can never win against the kingdom of God and the spirit of God in a person when we're empowered. So Satan latches on to influence. In this case, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. If that tells you, it's actually in Scripture how intelligent he was. He was the governor. He called for Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. He didn't want to just spend time with them. He didn't want to just greet them as visitors. He wanted to hear the gospel that they preached. Now, he was, again, the most influential man on the island, a direct representative of the Senate themselves. Uh, We actually have uh, historical, archaeological proof that that L. Sergius Paulus was the proconsul during this time. We have found that proof etched in stone on the island of Cyprus. We also have archaeological proof that he was demoted as a result of following Jesus Christ as his Savior. So we don't get a whole lot more information about him in history or from Scripture, but this is absolutely truth and has been excavated on the island of Cyprus. Anyway, verse 12, this uh, Elymas, the sorcerer, is withstanding. We may never really know his real name. Elymas actually means a wise man. It comes from a root word, though, that's a little an anomaly, and that is the word powerful. So Elymas actually means a powerfully wise man. This is the nickname to the nickname. I just think Luke couldn't bring himself to call him Bar-Jesus one more time. And so he gives him another name, powerful wise man. Withstands him, and uh, 
he was obviously threatened by the truth of Christ. And it says he's trying to withstand because he doesn't want Sergius Paulus to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It's almost like this man of the occult, this man of false prophecy, this, this, uh, this magician, this sorcerer knew exactly who he was serving. And he knew that if Sergius Paulus came into contact with the truth, it would change him and it would completely change Elemis's identity on the island. He'd lose his job, he'd lose his identity, he'd lose his reputation, he'd lose his influence. Uh, seems to me he's pretty obvious he knows that he is influenced by Satan himself. So, powerful and wise, never been stopped before. He's always been able to withstand, always been able to stand up against other truths. He's always been able to keep his seat of power, but he's never dealt with empowered people before. So I want to encourage you in that. Though the world may win time after time after time again, the world's never dealt with empowered people before. The world that we shrink away from never dealt with empowered people before. They may come into contact with Christians, but if Christians forget who they're living for and who is living in them, we'll just look like normal citizens of this kingdom. So you need to remember that greater is he that is what? In us than he that is in the world. Very important truth there. So then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. You see that? That's why we're talking about this passage of Scripture. You don't have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be sent out from somebody. You don't have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to catch boats and to preach the gospel. But here, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, now listen to this. We listen to this. This is, you talk about a powerful statement. Oh, fool of all deceit. And all fraud, you son of the devil. Now this is great because what is his name? What does people call him? Son of Jesus. What does Paul call him? You're not son of Jesus. You're son of the devil. Holy smoke. You talk about putting it back in somebody's face. You claim righteousness, but you're an enemy of all righteousness. Will you not stop, cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And let's stop for just a moment. We're almost done, so continue to be patient for just a few more minutes. Paul is still relatively a new Christian. He doesn't have a whole lot of preaching behind him. He has very little ministry behind him. Very few do uh, have much behind them. But it sounds as almost like Paul, a few years ago in his own life, could be talking to himself. You remember who Paul used to walk around being? who he truly believed himself to be. The only one that was on God's side. The only one who was standing up for righteousness, trying to destroy this new movement that was competing with Judaism. These people who claimed to be transformed by Jesus Christ, who I watched die on the cross. I was there. Paul goes from city to city, mowing down Christians and destroying, wreaking havoc in the churches and murdering anyone who names the name of Jesus, calling himself a son of God, calling himself a Pharisee of Pharisees and the most righteous one among us. But there was something that happened to him on a way to a massacre. You remember? Jesus appeared to him and got his undevoted attention and knocked him off his donkey, struck him blind for a season. And when Paul obeyed the teaching of Jesus Christ and he went to Straight Street and met a certain disciple, Ananias, Ananias healed him 
of that blindness. And it says that in that moment of his eyes becoming open, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He received, he experienced radical transformation. It changed him. I mean, it changed everything about him. He immediately went to the church at Damascus and fellowshiped with those folks. And he went to Asia Minor and was taught by the Holy Spirit himself for 18 months. And then he began to make acquaintances with the first apostles and was welcomed into their movement. And then he actually was sent out by all of those guys who believed in him after a period of time up to this fledgling church in Antioch who sent him out as a missionary. I mean, radical transformation. Everything about this man's life had changed just like everything in Elymas's life would change. So, what's the solution for Elymas? This is the first time that Paul has been in this type of situation. So Paul drew upon the only experience that he had ever had in this type of situation. I think in Paul's mind he is looking at Elymas and saying, "I was just I can see me in you." I wasn't a sorcerer, but everything you're against, I was against. Everything you loved, I loved. I just didn't know how dark it was. So what's the solution to resisting and with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, standing? What does he do? Oh, I know what works for me, so you're going to be blind for a season. Worked for me. And immediately, dark mist fell over Elymas' eyes, and he began to look for someone to take him by the hand to lead him around. I don't know what happened to him. But when Paul says, you, and the Greek is very clear, you shall be blind. It's, it's almost written in a way that he's giving Elymas this false prophet, this teacher of darkness, the best gift he knew how to give him. It took me three days to be able to realize my spiritual blindness. But I came to the truth of Jesus Christ as a result of my blindness. So I'm going to give you the best gift I know how to give you. You're not going to stop talking the way you are. You're always going to be a deceiver the way you are. Boom. Be blind. And immediately the Holy Spirit did through Paul the very thing that he'd empowered Paul to do. Now the reason that I say this is we started at the very begin, begin, uh, beginning. When what did God expect of Barnabas? Go back to your own people. Take the one thing you have is the testimony of who you are. What's the one thing that Paul has right now? The testimony of who you are. These men are just giving away what God had already done in them. And it's changing the world. Now for those of you who think you need a Bible education, think you need a degree, think you need to, to have certain gifts or be able to speak well or to be able to move mountains or to perform miracles in order to be a minister of the gospel, you don't. You just have to have your story. And to walk in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's the game changer. Is to be filled with the Spirit. And to speak your words of testimony of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Now I want you to notice this. When Sergius Paulus saw what happened to Bar-Jesus. says he was kind of taken off guard. But he was astonished at the teaching of Jesus Christ. And that, not the miracle of the blindness... It was the miracle of the transforming words of Jesus Christ that changed this man. So, church, I want to encourage you.
for those of us who say, I really am not good at that, or I'm not empowered to do that, or I don't have the giftings to do that, or I don't have the tools to do that. When the Lord looked and heard, or Moses heard from the Lord to do a work, the Lord said, Moses said, I don't know what to do. And the Lord said, what's in your hand? A rod. Okay, raise that rod. Is there anything supernatural about the rod? Nope. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That was the powerful thing. So I'm going to tell you, when you're going to ask the Lord through your prayer life, I want to be a minister into the gospel, Lord. I want to be used by your hand. He's going to say, okay, great. Now that you have a burden, I'm going to empower you. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's in your hand? My own personal transformation story is all I've got, Lord. I've got nothing else. Use that. So many of us try to hide from who we used to be try to hide our darkest days and pretend put our Jesus masks on. They're just like face masks. You know, we're trying to pretend that we got our life put together. I'm telling you, nobody, you're, not, you're not snowing anybody in here. We know because there's no such sin that's not common to man, right? We know who everybody is. But when the church has the reputation of I don't belong there because I can't be like you people, that's what's caused us to live in a countercultural world that we live in today. The world doesn't, can't see their place in the body of Christ because the body of Christ has stopped giving the testimony of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. You have one tool, and that is what Jesus has done in your life. I don't really know who Jesus is, but I know this. Yesterday I couldn't walk, and today I can what a testimony. I don't know how to explain it, but I know I'm not who I used to be. Take that and change the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the work that you do in us, through us. You have empowered us in so many ways. You've empowered us to walk in the feet of Jesus. You've empowered us to understand the scripture. You've empowered us to pray. You've empowered us to give generously. You've empowered us to speak boldly. And now, Lord, we are learning that you empower us to not only die, but to face wolves. And if we're going to live in the empowerment of Jesus Christ, we are going to face wolves. But I'm thankful, Lord, that the tools in our hand are not carnal. The tools in our hand are spiritual. It's the power of a life lived in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I pray that you would use us. Lord, may we begin to pray and to fast and to seek your direction, to know how to reach a world of Sergius Paulus's. And while we seek those out, Lord, that we would know how to tactfully and respectfully and intentionally deal with the bar Jesuses that come along with that. We ask for your wisdom, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.